Hey design thinkers, welcome to another episode of the show. I am your host, Simon Hong, and I am very excited to share an inspiring conversation with Ulia Konaginu covering UX research, sharing her experience and expertise. So without further ado, let's go. Holding a PhD in Sociology and MSc in Advanced Research Methods, Julia has been designing, managing and delivering UX or market research projects for more than 15 years, both in the academic and commercial environments. Her expertise covers a wide range of methodologies such as online communities, ethnography, qualitative and quantitative ad hoc or tracking studies, immersive workshops or hybrid approaches, and industries like travel, FMCG, automotive and retail. Besides her commercial roles, she has been actively involved in various educational programs for young researchers and is currently co-organising Quant Qualbridge community events. Hey, Julia, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's great to have you today and to talk about your role as a UX researcher. Um, how are you today? Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, first of all. Um, I'm a bit nervous because this is actually my first podcast. So. Oh, really? Don't be nervous. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a good day and a good start of the week. So hopefully um, this is going to be a really interesting episode for everyone. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm super excited just for my own benefit and intrigued to learn more about uh, UX research. I'm quite interested in the uh, educational programs and the the Qual Bridge Community events that you've been involved in and organising. Can you tell us a bit about that? As I'm sure the listeners are curious as well as I am. Oh, thank you for asking about that because it's actually one of the most uh, recent initiatives I got involved in. So. Um, the Quant Qual Bridge is literally a group of people from different disciplines, different backgrounds, uh, different countries even, um, mm-hmm. just coming together to discuss about their challenges and solutions when it comes to using hybrid approaches. Um, so we're all kind of passionate about solving problems, regardless if we use Qual or Quant research. And we just kind of want to create a stronger bond between um what is known as the core UX research methods, um, they're more uh, usually associated with qual, but we also want to bridge that with data science, quant approaches, and that's something I'm very passionate about um, in my work as well. Um, mm-hmm. We had several events so far, uh, free webinars that everyone can attend, um, and we also have a really vivid um, Slack channel uh, where we kind of discuss um during and after um, the sessions and we already have like a core group of people who keep uh joining every time so it's quite interesting to kind of get to speak to uh people who are passionate about the same thing oh that sounds really fascinating indeed um yeah it'd be it'd be good if you uh shared a link um uh, towards the end of the uh the show that'd be awesome um that is going to be a bit complicated because we don't actually have a link yet But people can get in touch in case they're interested. Uh, They can reach out on LinkedIn and I can kind of facilitate their access to that. Fabulous. Awesome. Yeah, so to start off with, how did you become a UX researcher? That's a good question. Um, So maybe it's worth um, starting by explaining how I became a researcher. Because I initially wanted to work in uh, PR. Um, I did sociology back in uni, so we kind of uh, did a bit of everything. Um, And at one point I was actually working as a PR and I was invited to um, uh, 
a conference where we had people speaking from different disciplines and there were some researchers there as well. And they kept kind of explaining how they're doing research. And someone from the audience asked um, about um, how they decide on the sample structure. Uh, and right. they gave a pretty vague answer. <laughs> and me being a sociologist, I was like, but there's a specific formula for that. Uh, and they were like, no, no, we just kind of use this number of people and we uh, analyze data in this way. And that made me very, very angry. And I decided that the world is full of unprofessional researchers and I need to solve that by joining um, the researchers uh, world. So that's how I uh, decided to become a researcher. <laughs> oh, wow. That is really fascinating. Was it difficult to get into that industry? Uh, not really, because um, I was um, I was still kind of uh, doing my master's degree then. And um, one of um, our teachers uh, was actually able to um, support our access to um, some market research agency that were uh, hiring grads at that time. So um, we just went there, uh, we interviewed um, and we had some really good conversations. And uh, I, I could say it was quite easy simply because we had the right background at that particular moment in time. Right. That's so cool. Besides your career, uh, what do you do outside of work then? I like to travel, <laughs> if possible, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and play board games. Um, I like having friends over and just kind of spending a nice evening um, playing and having fun. Fantastic. I mean, in terms of from the top of your head, you mentioned about you love traveling. Which countries have you um, been to so far? Um, I've been to several, but I think in the last um, year and a half or two years already, I think um, I went to Scotland quite a few times. Okay. And yeah. I yeah, I'm, I'm kind of quite fond of that now, and um, we're planning another um, another travel there. So because I'm responsible to uh, kind of build the itinerary, and I do a lot of research for that, and it's quite fun uh, to kind of squeeze as much as possible in a list and then tick it off and um, create some nice memories um so yeah, obviously i've been to other places but um at the moment i'm really fascinated by scotland yeah that's awesome because i've never been so that's definitely on one of my lists i also love uh, traveling as well where i usually travel three to four times a year just before the pandemic and now i haven't been anywhere since so i, <laughs> I can't wait to, to start traveling again yeah it would be interesting to kind of go back to that that way of traveling yeah, absolutely. So what are some of your uh, favorite examples of good UX at the moment? Um, that, that is a difficult question for me because I don't necessarily look on purpose at that, if that makes sense. But there are a couple of apps um, that kind of um, do a really good job from my perspective. Um, H&M is one of them. And one of the reasons why I find it um, performing really, really well is related to the way they kind of uh, keep everything consistent online and offline. And I think that's one of the difficult things to achieve um, nowadays. And that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. So it, when we speak about experience, it's not just a digital experience. It kind of goes beyond that. Um, and Duolingo is another one, obviously, okay. <laughs> spending so much time at home <laughs> uh, in lockdown, you end up doing things like learning a new language, 
Um, and Duolingo was very, very kind of useful for that. And uh, I've seen people of different ages and different levels of, um, let's say, comfort with using um, such an app, uh, mm-hmm. having equally successful experiences. So that I think that's a sign of good UX. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah, I've not uh, really looked into the H&M app. And as you mentioned, consistency is um, key in UX. So I, I certainly will have a look at that. At the start of every project, uh, how do briefs usually come in for you? Uh, working on the client side, briefs are more take more the shape of let's say um, conversations, uh, roadmaps, and sometimes even a Slack message. Um, but obviously, you end up documenting everything, and you do kind of um, have something that looks like a brief once you kind of start working on a particular project. Uh, but the beginning seems to be um, less of a document and more of a conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really a really interesting approach. And I mean, some of the briefs usually come in in different formats across uh, industries. From what you've said, in regards to like just a simple Slack message or just a quick email, so that makes uh, perfect sense. Yeah, I'd also say that maybe, um, so when you say briefs coming in, I think that's the reactive side of research um, when something comes to you and then you have to solve it. Um, But I strongly believe that research should be proactive as well. And that's where uh, you get a lot of value from research. And you could think of instances when um, you basically brief yourself um, because you you noticed some patterns in in the research you've done before um or you just kind of uh triggered conversations with different people that um could solve a particular problem you noticed in your uh use conversations or just put the spotlight on a problem that keeps coming up so mm-hmm. uh briefs do come in but then you need to generate your own briefs as well yeah absolutely agree with that it's just been as you just said being proactive and finding problems off your own back and um yeah, I mean, it's the same as um, UX designers as well. It's just tend to, you tend to find bugs on on uh, your own product and that's where you start optimizing uh, a lot of your projects. Yeah. Cool. Can you tell us uh, one thing that you're currently working on right now? Yeah, so um, uh, we just started a conversation about um, the best way to measure customer experience across different touch points in a consistent way. Um, that actually serves um, several teams equally well, such as marketing, product, UX. Mm -hmm. And that on its own, um, that is quite a big challenge, I'd say, Um, especially nowadays when you you have so many tools and uh, methodologies available and every single uh, stakeholder could easily come um, with a solution at the table and have all the right arguments. Um, to put that forward but then again you have to kind of take a step back and think about the best approach uh, at the broader level in a way that the business gets value from that and is able to actually make decisions and it's quite interesting because just by coincidence our uh, most recent um, quant qual bridge session was just about that we had a really good speaker um, that shared um, their experience and how they went about building that and it's quite interesting to see how common this kind of conversation actually is at the minute and how many people have the same challenges and the wide range of um, different solutions they come up with um, to solve it 
Um, so we are at the beginning of the conversation. Um, so I won't be able to kind of give too much detail now, but I was happy to hear that uh, there are so many others kind of having these conversations at different levels of maturity, because you, you can have companies that, that have been there for um, many, many years. They got stuck in a way of doing it using, for example, um, NPS or customer satisfaction scores or whatever that is. And then they're trying to kind of reform that now, but they need to be mindful of how um, the change will impact the way they compare um, what was happening before with what's happening from now on. Uh, or you can have a company that is just starting to look at that now. So they start from a blank sheet of paper and they have so many options. So the problem is about deciding which is the best approach, full stop. So I, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really awesome. And so I look forward to hearing more of this uh, when you get further on to the project. Yeah. Nice. Could you walk us through your workflow of a recent UX research project? That is a good question. So now in my mind, I'm thinking, should I walk you through a simple, straightforward project? Or should I talk about a very complex and complicated project that took a long time to sort out, but um, brought a lot of value? Um, so I think I'll, I'll talk about um, the latter. And um, it has to do with one of the, let's say, key um, concepts we have in um, UX and UX research really uh, personas yeah um, and I think there's a lot of um, th there are many conversations about the best ways to kind of uh, build personas how to use them how not to use them uh, there are different opinions out there but the one conclusion I came to uh, recently is that it, it may be helpful in some situations uh, to kind of move away from that static view on personas and um, embrace fluid personas um, and more flexible approaches um, more because it, right. it, it, it is a bit more related to how people actually think and behave nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we kind of uh, came up with after I think almost a year worth of work um, on uh, on personas. So. Um, we moved from um, proto-personas, went through a stage of data-driven personas and ended up having fluid personas that work well, um, are quite practic practical and easy to use tools for um, UX product and even marketing from time to time. So it, it, it all started from the need to have um, some um, personas to work with um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And the first go-to in that situation is obviously um, data. Um, and I think the first step uh, that happened a bit before I joined the project uh, was to kind of have something built on the back of a mix of uh, GE data and some assumptions made by the team. Okay. And that worked well for a while, but then the more research we did and the more interviews we had, um, we're kind of, first of all, struggle struggling a bit to recognize them um in the people we were speaking to uh we, we saw bits and bobs um a mix of um elements from different personas but not necessarily identifying the actual um people we thought we um we were speaking to so that that made us wonder um whether it makes sense to kind of take a step back and uh look at more 
at more data and build some data-driven personas, um, which is what we did. And um, because we wanted them to be credible tools across different teams, we looked at five data streams, some very, let's say, common ones like uh, GA data, some survey data we had, but some very complex uh, sets of data coming from the marketing side as well, just to make sure that whatever it is that we end up building makes sense for every team. Um, and there was a mix of qual research, obviously, and quant uh, data analysis as well. Um, and we built those data-driven personas uh, which were very interesting. They were very robust, very detailed. Mm -hmm. But then again, the new challenge we had was that um, it was really difficult to use them on a day-to-day -day basis, especially on the UX side of things. I think someone literally said it, it feels like doing drifts with the Titanic on the Thames. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so complicated already. <laughs> yeah, I know. So um, we had to take another step back. Um, gather the requirements again, um, see the use cases, and basically switch focus um, from this kind of static view to, context to contextual mindset and kind of focus on the essential features um, that are actually useful um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And we were able to do that after we kind of uh, revisited most of the research we've done in the previous stage. And um, that's how we actually identified um, these fluid personas. Um, so what are they? They basically replicate real life scenarios um, while pinpointing specific aspects that have the strongest impact on behavior, interaction and user experience. They have um, very few, um, let's call them static, um, descriptors such as a name, age, um, location, and a bit about the family. But other than that, everything is flexible and um, relies on the four pillars that define um, how a person interacts with a particular um, website. Um, it's kind of difficult to make it a bit more tangible without going in some sensitive details yeah i mean it sounds fantastic already as i've not, obviously not heard of fluid uh, persona once you've built these sets of fluid personas how did the team um, use it on their projects yeah. so um one of the advantages um was that the team was actually involved in in building these personas so we're already kind of used uh to the concept and the way of working with it so from that perspective is it was already a win-win um and they are actually used on a regular basis, particularly because they allow this element of flexibility uh, and you can build the scenario depending on the project you're working on. So let's say, I'll try and um, make a spontaneous um, adaptation for Costa. Okay. Kind of uh, put it into context a bit. So let's assume you're doing a project uh, where you're trying to improve um, the map function. So where uh, each location is um, and how people see that in, in your app. And in order to do that, you'd like to kind of get an understanding of how each persona 
um, interacts with the map. So for each of them, you build a fluid um, scenario based on the key pillars that define um, users' experience with your app. Let's assume, so this is just pure uh, yeah. assumptions, that those four pillars in your case are, um, have, they, um, have they used the app before or not? Um, have they used Costa before or not? And is um, coffee um, their main kind of um, go-to or are they more of a, uh, let's say, um, foodie person and they would kind of um, rather go there for the full menu? Right. Um, and for one of the personas, let's say that um, your fluid scenario, so th these are the fixed elements and you just say, oh, actually, well, persona one is a regular Costa customer, goes there, um, has several locations where they go uh, on a regular basis and they would just kind of consume everything. Um, and their scenario is that they are um, on their way to home, um, and they just need to grab something for uh, some random uh, guests they have, and they're not prepared for that. So they are looking for uh, the closest location to their home to make sure that the food is still fresh when they get there. Okay. Um, and based on that, you will then kind of understand uh, the particular needs and requirements of that profile in that particular context. The other persona could be a new Costa customer that um, maybe um, just randomly had a couple of Costa coffees before, but downloaded the app recently, and they are in a new town, uh, and they just want to rely on something um, of quality, and they trust Costa to have that consistent quality. So th they're just kind of uh, looking for um, a Costa location to spend some time uh, before they um, go to the train station. Uh, again, different needs, different ways of interacting with the app, simply based on their different context and different mindset. I mm -hmm. hope that makes a bit more sense and it brings it to a more tangible level. Yeah, it does. So basically, the whole uh, idea of fluid personas is that it's catered for every business almost. Yeah, you just start from some some basic, um, let's say, you can even call them demographics, and then those pillars that define what makes the difference in terms of behavior and experience. Um, you create the scenarios and then you just kind of use that. You can use it in workshops, in tactical projects, in conversations, in brainstorming sessions. Yeah, sounds really uh, interesting. I'm sure the listeners will, will say the same thing. So yes, yeah, so I appreciate that. Uh, in terms of types of research methods, what do you prefer using? Um, I think I gave it away <laughs> uh, in the first question. I really love um, hybrid approaches and just answering a question uh, regardless of what's actually needed, be it um, a single method, qualquant or merging, or just looking at uh, various data sources such as, um, I don't know, internal data, GA, uh, trust pilot reviews. Um, I, I like kind of making sure that the answer makes sense and it touches on all, all the questions that the stakeholder has rather than focusing, oh, I like this method, or I like the other one. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Like looking at, you know, Trustpilot, as you mentioned, as, as a source of research method. 
And that's really interesting, just getting all that um, user review feedback, just raw and ready to to define a lot of the, the journeys and stuff that you want to uh, move on to, which is really good. Well, I mean, one of the things I really love in terms of research methods is usertesting.com. And obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with that, especially, yeah. <laughs> especially recently when they have launched the participant camera view when conducting unmoderated usability testing so now you can see the participants expressions while they perform each task i thought that's just a game changer for me what do you think of it yeah it's quite an interesting feature and it definitely helps um but sometimes um depending on the kind of scenario you're having and the kind of conversations you're having you might want to either kind of allow them um to just behave as naturally as possible and just observe their interaction rather than focusing on um, controlling their expressions and their setting. Um, So it's definitely something that helps. But again, it needs to happen in the right context. And you keep hearing me say context, context, context. But I think that is really, really important, um, both when you're kind of defining um, the methodology, analyzing the data and having the stakeholder conversations. Mm, I totally agree. And yeah, trying to get the right context to get the right feedback on specific testing as well. So yeah, it's, it's a really good reminder on that. So what is the most challenging part of your role? Oh, that is a very good question. Um, so as a as a researcher, you... You just need to wear so many hats at the same time. <laughs> uh, you need to be uh, a translator, a coach, uh, sometimes politician, an academic, and a researcher <laughs> in, in, in different conversations. And I guess sometimes uh, you end up uh, losing one of the hats on your way to a meeting and um, you end up being too much of a coach and less of a, a researcher or the other way around. Um, and I think I, I know I'm, I'm speaking in metaphors now, but um, yeah, it, I think that's that's the most challenging part of uh, of a researcher's life: uh, how to kind of manage uh, the other skills, um, the non-researcher skills, um, while also doing the researcher job at the same time. And I, I guess everyone can relate. Uh, you can replace the word researcher with anything else, mm-hmm. and you'd probably hear the same story. Yeah, that's really interesting, and. Being a UX researcher is similar to a UX designer in terms of just wearing different hats uh, f- yeah. throughout, throughout the whole journey. And the other thing, a bit more specific to research, though, um, is around um, finding the right, keeping the balance um, in terms of answering a question at the right time, uh, involving the right people, and using the right resources. Um, there are several kind of balls you need to kind of juggle with at the same time and especially uh, nowadays when there's a lot of pressure on uh, on e-com and we speak about design thinking agile methods lean and so on um, yeah. but at the same time there's a need for um, having robust data and making sure that you are uh, involving uh, research at the right time and you're speaking to uh, the right users so there are so many details in, in the background and I know that people are aware of that but then again there's always the odd situation when you have uh, massive pressure on delivering something strategic in three days and with no budget so again um, <laughs> a bit of an extreme example but I, I think you know what I mean in terms of um, challenges. 
Yeah, totally. And just going back to when you mentioned about uh, wearing different hats, could you tell us the scenario of wearing the wrong hat during a meeting or something like that, as you've mentioned? It'd be interesting to know some of the experience that you've had. Yeah, so I think um, um, a very good example would be of a, of a conversation I had um, a while ago. Uh, I was at the beginning of my journey uh, with, um, with a company and I, um, I received a request from someone um, from the marketing team. Okay. Um, and I somehow went into the conversation assuming that um, they didn't necessarily have all the UX background to that, um, uh, to that story. So I went right. in wearing uh, the coach kind of hat, a mix of coach and research hat. But I was definitely, I was, I was definitely missing the academic uh, hat because um, that particular person in that particular conversation just needed um, a lot of reassurance and handholding and a lot of um, theory of research and why this, why that, um, and I was just kind of trying um, to do the let's say, uh, the social side of, of the conversation so I can actually understand um, if it sits in marketing, does it sit in UX, uh, what needs to be sorted out. So I was trying to kind of understand what was happening, but that person needed reassurance and um, a very, let's say, um, academic research approach. I realized that after half an hour into the conversation and we only had like 10 minutes left. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was a very good um let's say experience for me because it it helped me understand that I need to check uh, before starting the proper conversation what what kind of hat I need to wear. Yeah that's really interesting and uh, I could imagine how challenging that has been. It happens across uh, different industries as well so it's good to hear firsthand from from your experience that we can all learn from. Besides that then where do you go for UX inspiration? Um, It very much depends on on the project, I guess, um, there's always the classic going in to just check what, what competitors are doing or going um, beyond that and uh, checking what's happening in other industries. So kind of getting inspiration from um, other companies that have a similar challenge, but not in the same setting. Okay. Um, and that's always insightful. But for me as a researcher, just watching people and um having um, conversations or hearing other people's conversations randomly is very, really helpful. Um, and reading random books, that's always helpful. Um, yeah. Understanding historical events and what happened, for example, um, there's, um, I have a favorite example really. Um, there's something called the Battle of Taranto um, and it happened before Pearl Harbor. And it's quite yeah. interesting to see how on the back of that, um, two, different, two, two different people made two very different decisions. And because one of them was able to kind of um, take the learnings from that particular battle and uh, translate it into action using uh, his organization, they basically led to um, Pearl Harbor. Uh, whereas the other one, was unable to kind of trigger action, even if they um, if they were aware of um, 
the consequences. So that's quite interesting to kind of take learnings from historical events and um, even more recent ones like the fire festival. I think that that's classic already. Um, yeah. And I like how you mentioned about interacting with users um, to get inspiration. And I totally get that, especially having that empathy for, for users. And uh, that will definitely motivate you to do, you know, to do a better job from a UX perspective, just to make something a bit more, more clearer and user friendly. Yeah, there's always value in just listening to people. And uh, even though it sounds like you're solving a very particular problem or you're working on a very particular feature, just kind of taking a step back and um, having some very generic or even random uh, user conversations and just listening, but genuinely listening to what they're saying and allowing them to express everything um, they're thinking of, expecting and so on that could end up in a very revealing um, insight for you and the very particular project you're working on. Um, So there's value in taking a step back. Um, You don't always have to kind of uh, stay, um, let's say, in the box. You're um, you're kind of uh, focused on working at a particular moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice as well, taking a step back and just listen to how users feel. What are your favorite apps for UX? You mentioned user testing. Um, that, yeah. that, that's one of the, um, the tools I'm actually addicted to. The yes, other one <laughs> the other one is Miro, <laughs> especially, especially after lockdown. Uh, I think we all kind of discovered the value of, um, of Miro and how we can use that in, in multiple ways. Um, and, changing, isn't it? Yeah, and now we're kind of using it even for research analysis which sounds crazy, but actually works. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. What do you use to store all your uh, research findings? Um, so there's something called um, a research repository and um, a knowledge library um, and serve slightly different purposes, but obviously they kind of uh, come in together quite nicely to build uh, the bigger picture. So the research um, knowledge library is where you um, host um, documents and the end results. And it it, it literally is a library. Um, Whereas the repository has a more tactical day-to-day purpose uh, where you can kind of revisit some of um, the research you've done before or where you came across specific themes or keywords or tags. Um, that maybe just seemed random three months ago, but now all of a sudden you see a pattern and you just want to revisit everything and, and go back um, go back to that. Um, and there are tools for that, obviously. Uh, I think Dovetail is probably one of the most popular ones, um, but uh, there are solutions that you can build on your own in-house as well. Okay. Um, yeah, that's but, really good to know. Yeah. The key here is to allow access in a structured and consistent way uh, to the research you do. If um, I think we should have perhaps a bit less of um, focus on the tool and just make sure that we actually deliver what we want to achieve. Um, It's really, really easy to chase um, better, bigger solutions. There are so many, so, so, so many tools out there and you'll always find uh, a bigger one, a better one, a more interesting one. Um, and I think that that kind of, at least from a researcher's perspective, that could sometimes be 
not dangerous, but it could kind of uh, make you lose focus. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what defines a good UX researcher? Quite interested in this one. <laughs> yeah, I think um, a good researcher knows how to listen and um, ask the right questions at the right time. Yeah. Um, it, it's really easy as a researcher to kind of um, keep asking questions during a conversation, but sometimes there's more value in just kind of taking a step back and listening and encouraging uh, the other person, be it a user or a stakeholder, just kind of speak out their mind. A good researcher is structured and intentional. Uh, and by intentional, I mean that they have a plan uh, for the conversation, a plan for the analysis. Um, otherwise, you might end up um, not necessarily finding um, valuable insights. Right, okay. Um, the other thing is about being aware of your own biases as well. It's so, so easy to yeah. kind of, we all know what biases are and how users can be biased. But at the end of the day, we're human, so we're biased as well. Um, so we need to kind of be aware of that and try to manage it uh, during our, uh, during analysis, especially uh, and when we kind of play back um, the results. Um, and maybe... Um, yeah, just kind of um, understand the value of stakeholder buy-in and how to get that. Um, a project can live or die depending on that and not necessarily on how good the methodology was. Okay. Um, so that's something to be mindful of. And of course, never, never become too attached to a methodology uh, or a specific way of working. That is one of the capital scenes that um, David Travis talks about in his really, really good book, um, I think like a UX researcher. So yeah, it's worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, these are really fantastic things that you've mentioned. And especially when you said about bias as well, it's just sometimes it's quite difficult not to be that. But yeah, it's definitely something to, even for myself, to be more mindful when I'm conducting a lot of my research as well. Just learn so much just from what you just said there. That's great. Yeah. So, I mean, this question's kind of a follow-up from what I've just asked you. What one key UX piece of advice would you give to the listeners? Um, I have a couple, actually, and I hope you don't mind me. Absolutely. Um, Even better. <laughs> so the first one is always ask the question, no matter how silly it sounds in your mind. Um, it, it, better safe than sorry. Uh, especially in, in stakeholder conversations, always clarify that one thing that kind of keeps bugging you in the back of your mind, but you're you're thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask this because it doesn't make sense, or we already talked about this, like last week, maybe I shouldn't go back to it. Just go back to it, clarify it before you start working on um, on a piece of uh, research. That's one. And then the second one is make sure you you find or at least try to find your own or your team's blind spot um what are you not seeing because it makes you feel better not to see it and this is actually a quote from one of my favorite books um called willful blindness okay i would encourage everyone to read it 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 talks about how sometimes as individuals we just don't see things because it makes us feel better not seeing them and it applies to people teams companies um and i think it's worth being aware of how 
how that happens. And if there's even a tiny, tiny step you can do in every single kind of project, um, if you can do something to kind of identify your blind spot and at least address it in a way, you'd have less conversations about the elephant in the room uh, and that, that that sort of talk. So, Yeah, these are really good advice. Do you have an example of seeing your own blind spot, as you've just mentioned? Uh, yeah, it was. it's actually quite a funny one. Um, I remember a while ago we um, were working on a project uh, where we were exploring how to expand our product to a new area Um, and it was purely the opposite of the area we were already working on if that makes sense and um, everyone was talking about let's call them um, area a and area b and everyone was like oh we need to expand into b we need to do b let's do some research and explore b and the one question that kept bugging me and I ended up asking in a, in a meeting was, but what do you mean by B? How is B different from A? Mm-hmm. And the initial reaction was like, oh, well, it's a, what, what do you mean? Because it's just A and B. There's nothing else beyond that. But then the more we talked about it, the more we realized that actually our own understanding of A and B and how different they are wasn't as thorough and when we looked at competitors we actually realized that each competitor had a different definition of a and b right so simply asking this absolutely ridiculous question of what do you actually mean by a and b uh made us kind of take a step back and um understand things better and uh, we ended up doing um, a better piece of exploration because of that but it took me some courage to ask the question because everyone seemed so um, confident about what a and b actually mean it kind of relates to the first point you mentioned about ask as much questions as possible even though if it sounds silly yeah 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 totally can relate to that so lastly then uh, where can we find your work and uh, connect with you well, I have a LinkedIn account, but that's pretty much it. So um, okay. uh, yeah, I don't have another space where I'm um, sharing my work, not just yet. So LinkedIn, I'd say, is the only one. Fantastic. So yeah, so thank you so much, Ilya, for a brilliant session, for sharing your experience with us and keeping us uh, inspired. I am sure the listeners will get a lot out of this, as I definitely have. We'll be applying some of the methods and techniques when conducting research, so I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, and I I do hope that people will kind of find um, valuable bits of information um, in what I shared today. So um, yeah, looking forward to kind of hearing back yeah indeed thank you for your time again and i'll uh, see you soon yep see you soon cheers bye bye thanks to julia for a great session very inspiring who is clearly passionate about her work and the love for ux research i have learned so much from the conversation today and i hope you have too if you have enjoyed the show i would really appreciate if you could leave a review on all the platforms so we can get this show to uh to more designers and to inspire them And lastly, I'd love to connect with you. And as usual, any ideas for the show are more than welcome. Until next month, let's get inspired and stay curious, folks.